listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to the 250th episode of Belaboured, our podcast about work, workers, and working in this late capitalist hellscape. 250 episodes. Oh, my goodness. Today, we are bringing you a deep dive into the labor politics over the reversal of Roe versus Wade, plus some bonus content about workers in China, independent contractors, and the prospects for a hot strike summer. First, the news. New Yorkers are always hustling, but a lot of that hustle is being done under illegal employment arrangements, according to a new study by the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School. The analysis of low-wage industries across New York State found that 873,000 workers in low-paid jobs are misclassified as independent contractors. Many of them are gig workers with online platforms like Uber or Grubhub. Independent contractors generally work on a short-term basis and are not considered official employees. Instead, they get the so-called 1099 slip for the IRS. That makes them technically ineligible for all sorts of benefits and protections like minimum wage and overtime laws, unemployment insurance, or workers' compensation. So basically, it's cheaper to hire a worker as a contractor than to put them on a payroll. The analysis found that independent contractors across New York are disproportionately people of color and, quote, are more likely to rely on Medicaid and twice as likely to lack health insurance as payroll workers in the same low-paying industries. Although the status of platform-based gig workers has gotten considerable attention in recent years, misclassification touches a much wider array of sectors. According to the study, quote, about 10% of New York's 8.8 million workers are misclassified as independent contractors. A little over 20%, or 190,000, of the 873,000 misclassified low-paid independent contractors are gig workers whose work is mediated by online labor platforms, unquote. The main industries that independent contractors are employed in include transportation, construction, janitorial work, and personal services, such as nail technicians. There have been some reforms at the state and city level to extend various labor protections to independent contractors, such as a minimum wage law for rideshare drivers in New York City. But lawmakers have yet to substantially reform labor laws to tighten standards for classifying workers as employees to prevent misclassification from happening in the first place. Lena Moe, a policy analyst at the Center for New York City Affairs and co-author of the report, said the issue of employee misclassification has become chronic but could be remedied by enforcing and strengthening existing labor laws. Our report does look at gig workers as an important sector of low-paid workers in New York City and in New York State. We estimate there are about 190,000 gig workers whose jobs are mediated by online platforms. And the industry that by far and away leads this in number of workers is transportation. So the ride hail industry has increased uh, double-digit points um, over the past five years. However, we also want to make the larger point that gig work is a subset of a much broader trend of independent contractors. So independent contractors are workers who are not employed by a business, so they miss out on important and basic labor protections, rights and benefits such as minimum wage, safe workplaces, access to paid family and sick leave. And these independent contractors might not be the kind of person that you think of when you think of as a gig worker. They might actually go to a brick and mortar store like a nail salon. They might work construction. They might be a retail worker. But this uh, workforce is much bigger. And so we estimate there are 
873,000 workers in low-paid industries who work as independent contractors. And we think that those workers need to be part of this conversation alongside gig workers as workers who are denied these rights and benefits because they are misclassified. So for example, nail salon workers generally work just for one nail salon. They generally pick up as many hours up to full-time and more at a single nail salon. They don't get to set their hourly rates. They don't get to control the pace and situation of their work. So they are really acting a lot like employees. And we think that those workers are misclassified. There have been quite a number of Uber and Lyft drivers, as well as uh, delivery workers who have been organizing in recent months, especially Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Are they putting forward a demand that they be classified as actual employees? So the, at the, the Center for New York City Affairs is part of a broad coalition of labor groups and um, groups that are organizing precarious and unprotected workers in New York City and in New York State called the Direct Coalition. And um, organizers for the Taxi Limousine Commission who advocate on behalf of yellow cab drivers, as well as some ride hailing drivers Um, are part of that coalition and are interested in putting forward policies that would have uh, a presumed employee status. So you start with a presumption of being an employee in which you get all of the benefits of workers' compensation and unemployment insurance, um, health insurance, minimum wage. And in order to not be classified as an employee, you have to fit these special buckets of having control over your work or your schedule, your hourly rates. So I think that the the TLC is certainly in support of that kind of reversal of burden away from putting it on workers to advocate for their rights and fair pay and put it on companies to make a case why workers shouldn't be paid fairly or afforded all of the benefits that they would be as employees. I'm sort of curious about the policy landscape in New York, because I know that when California passed the AB5 law that attempted to deal with this issue of misclassification through a particular legal test that could be applied to determine someone's actual status, there was a lot of pushback from the rideshare industry, and uh, there ended up being uh, various carve-outs to that law. So I was just wondering if you had explored the prospect of legislation like that in New York and uh, maybe what could be done differently to ensure that um, the the legislation maintains its sort of integrity in the face of all these different industry lobbies. Yeah, the California story was so instructive for uh, New York organizers and for uh, policymakers. So one thing is that um, any proposed legislation in New York likely will deal with certain categories of workers that I mentioned, um, especially those that are part of the freelancers union to not have the presumption of employee status. So these might be people in the creative industries, um, arts and entertainment. They might be screenwriters or directors, writers, copy editors. There are a lot of those workers who 
don't want to be classified as employees, but also don't want their carve out to weaken the labor claims of other low paid workers. And so the freelancers union has been really supportive of the direct coalition's work to start to put together policy proposals and legislation um, similar to that of California, but taking into account especially these higher paid arts and entertainment workers. So I don't know if you followed last year, news broke in May of 2021 that there was going to be a right to bargain act um, introduced in the New York legislature which would have allowed app-based drivers, so Uber and Lyft drivers and delivery workers, to bargain collectively, but they would have remained non-employees. And it also meant that certain advances in New York City, such as the minimum hourly pay for four hire drivers in New York City, would have been rolled back. So it was part of a trend that we also try to point to in the report of preemption so that when cities and local governments are pushing ahead with policies to protect low-paid workers, at the state level, you will see legislators act to preempt the right of cities to govern workforces. And so this right to bargain act would have rolled back some of these New York City advances And in general, um, unions and advocacy groups in favor of workers came out against this so-called right to bargain act because it would have created a weak form of collective bargaining mediated through a company chosen union. And this would have excluded rank and file members from being part of the bargaining process. It would have banned strikes and work stoppages, and it would have prevented the kind of broad-based movement building and solidarity that's essential for workers to improve their lot. One, for example, really striking part of this bill that was proposed just last spring would have been that if a worker did not meet a set of company determined performance requirements, such as maintaining a five-star consumer rating, they would have been excluded from the proposed unemployment measures. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. It seems like there's there has there has been a raft of state bills that kind of have these Trojan horse policies, right? Where um, the companies are sort of seeking to provide you know some protections for workers as long as um, the they workers can close are, the door on others. Yeah, yeah, as long as they are completely denied employee status in perpetuity. So, going forward, what would you like to see New York State offer, maybe in the immediate term and in the long term, for gig workers who are misclassified? Um, you know, especially if the broader goal of full employee status might not be immediately forthcoming. There are a number of policies that New York can move forward to secure concrete benefits. The nail salon workers are an interesting case in point that I think that they've put together some really actionable concrete proposals. And one of them is innovative. So it would be an industry uh, board that would set recommendations for the sector, such as um, wage floors or price floors. But the other proposal that they're making is simply to enforce laws that are already on the books. So Workers United recently did a survey of nail salon technicians, and they asked them 
are you an independent contractor? Are you an employee? I think that they found about 40% of them were independent contractors. And they asked them, have you ever heard of an independent contractor business license? Because that's required to be an independent contractor. And most of them had never even heard of this special license that they had to have to legally be classified as an independent contractor. So part of what needs to happen is enforcement of regulations that are already on the books. The second, I think, policy win that we can look back on over the past decade is in the construction industry. So over the past decade, we've seen overall independent contractor numbers stay about steady. Um, so that's before the pandemic to after the pandemic. But within that broad category of low paid workers, some sectors have seen huge increases like the delivery and drivers, and some have seen decreases. And that's especially true in construction, where a decade ago, this was an egregious problem. But since the 2010 State Construction Industry Fair Play Act, there's been almost a third reduction in construction misclassification in New York City. And that's because the Fair Play Act instituted a presumption of employment to clarify the conditions, because there's a lot of gray areas around employers not knowing whether they can hire their workers as independent contractors or not. So this Fair Play Act set forward those conditions really clearly, and it created a presumption of employment. Um, and that's really worked. One problem is that, especially at the end of Governor Cuomo's tenure, the Labor Department's budget was reduced. So enforcement of that act, and in general, labor investigations of misclassifications really shrank. And um, we've seen promising moves um, in the 2023 state budget for increased fundings for labor standards enforcement. And we think that that's really promising. Is there anything else you wanted to add? One thing that's really important is that we are looking at really low paid sectors, workers that earn on average, you know, across these different industries from transportation to retail to personal care services, $28,000 a year if they're working full time. And that is egregiously low, but they also don't have um, benefits and protections. So independent contractors are twice as likely to be on Medicaid as payroll workers in the same low paid industries. So I think that comparison to employees in the same industries is so striking because they're doing the same work and they're getting paid less. And then I think one other thing that's important to note is that this is often considered a New York City problem or an urban problem, gig workers. But our report showed that independent contractors can be found across New York State. So there are nearly a quarter of low-paid independent contractors upstate. There are a lot of low-paid independent contractors in the downstate suburbs around New York City. So this is really a statewide issue um, and not something that is only plaguing New York City's workforce. That was Lena Moe, a policy analyst at the Center for New York City Affairs. Hello from sunny England. It really is sunny as I record this. And also the government is collapsing. The third education secretary this week has been appointed. Boris Johnson has just resigned and chaos reigns. In which Gareth Forrest of the TUC tweeted, Tory ministers stood together and toppled their boss. There's power in a union, folks. 
But even before the Conservative Party's decision that it had finally had enough of Boris, who presided over catastrophic COVID numbers, record inflation, the ongoing mess that is Brexit negotiations, and once making the Queen do a crime, not to mention hosting illegal parties while the rest of the country was grieving in lockdown isolation, things were heating up in Britain. The National Union of Rail, Maritime, and Transport Workers led the country's largest train strike in 30 years just a couple of weeks ago, beginning June 21st, and wound up their three days of action more popular than when they began. The RMT's General Secretary, Mick Lynch, and other union leaders made the media rounds and embarrassed Britain's very elite media by generally being competent spokespeople for the working class, something that posh politicians and broadcast mouthpieces seem to find impossible to imagine. The strike involved 40,000 signalers, maintenance and train staff working for Network Rail, which is responsible for infrastructure such as tracks, stations, and level crossings, and 13 train operators. It severely curtailed train services, with about half of all rail lines completely closed, and despite the Labour Party leadership having completely forgotten where their name comes from and trying to keep members of Parliament from joining picket lines, it looked like it was a good old time out in the streets. But the strikes ended with no resolution, and the RMT's comment on the resignation of Boris Johnson was to suggest that maybe a new transport minister would come to the table and make a fair deal with the workers who have asked for pay raises that keep up with inflation, no job cuts, and no fire and rehire, which is a particularly nasty scheme by which workers are fired and then hired back under worse contract conditions. And there are more strikes to come. In rail alone, the Transport Salaried Staffs Association, or TSSA, is taking a strike vote at Network Rail. This comes after the union already announced strike ballots at several rail operators. Meanwhile, members of the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, or ASLEF, are striking later this month at Hull Trains, Greater Anglia, and Croydon Tramlink. And if this is all confusing, it is because privatized trains are a bad idea, actually. Members of Unite and RMT, employed by U.S.-owned rail maintenance firm Wabtec, are planning a strike this month. And then there are others outside of trains. Criminal defense barristers struck recently. The National Education Union is warning of potential strikes when the school year begins. NHS staff could go out, including junior doctors who are asking for a pay increase to make up for years of cuts. And British telecom workers voted for their first strike in 35 years. Dave Ward, General Secretary of the Communications Workers Union, which represents those British telecom workers, said of the BT vote, quote, This is an incredible result that has been achieved despite a real culture of fear imposed by senior BT management. This proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that no worker in the UK is unreachable, that all workers are ready to stand up and fight for higher pay, and in some cases, better conditions, end quote. So we could be looking at a very hot strike summer here in Britain. Here's hoping. As friend of the show James Meadway wrote in Tribune, the strikes shouldn't be discounted as a factor stirring up British politics and perhaps contributing to the end of Boris's career. Quote, by the end of summer, with call center workers, teachers, brewery workers, and others all either balloting to strike or set to strike, Britain's politics could look significantly different with class politics back in a big, obvious way. Arriving at the moment of maximum confusion and disorganization for the Tories, there is the possibility of a major union-led breakthrough against the government's insistence on real-terms pay cuts across the board. If we want to rebuild the left, this is where it starts from. Sometimes it might seem to us in the U.S. that workers have an especially hard time organizing because the U.S. has uniquely weak labor laws as well as deep anti-union hostility from the right. But union busting is really a global phenomenon. 
The International Trade Union Confederation's latest Global Rights Index looks at how workers in different countries fare when it comes to protecting their labor rights and exercising their freedom of association. This year's report documents unprecedented levels of repression facing labor organizers and workers around the world. The index, which covers 148 countries, found that the right to form or join a union is outright prohibited for a significant portion of the global workforce. The number of countries that, quote, exclude workers from the right to establish or join a trade union, quote, unquote, rose in the past year from 106 in 2021 to 113 in 2022. In about three out of four countries, the government, quote, impeded the registration of unions up from 59% the year before, unquote. Those include longstanding authoritarian states like Belarus and Sudan, as well as places that have recently witnessed a severe rollback on democratic rights and labor rights, including Hong Kong and Myanmar. In 50 countries, workers were exposed to physical violence in 2022, up from 45 the year before. In Europe, the portion of countries where workers were exposed to violence more than doubled, from 12% to 26%. Trade unionists were murdered in 13 countries, including Bangladesh, Haiti, and Guatemala. Nearly 9 in 10 countries violated the right to strike, including violently suppressing strikes or arresting strike leaders. Those countries, again, include several authoritarian states, like Egypt, as well as nominal democracies like India and the Philippines. Four in five countries blocked collective bargaining. The report found that, quote, this right is being eroded in the public and private sector in every region, end quote. In addition, labor abuses intersect with civil liberties violations. The ITUC reports that, quote, 41% of countries denied or constrained freedom of speech and assembly. Workers experienced arbitrary arrests and detentions in 69 countries, and 66% of countries denied or restricted workers' access to justice including a rise from 76% to 95% of countries in Africa, end quote. I generally dislike indexes like this because they tend to rank vastly different countries on some fairly subjective measure related to human rights, like democracy or freedom of press. And almost always, it is poorer countries that fare the worst, so that's not really surprising. The findings often lack the social and political context one really needs to understand why certain rights and institutions have been eroded over time. In the case of this labor rights index, though, the documentation of these threats to labor and union rights can actually provide additional context for understanding these social, economic, and geopolitical circumstances in these countries. Restrictions on independent trade union activity is part of a broader assault on democracy in countries that may be prosperous but non-democratic, for example. And the systematic repression of trade unions in places like Bangladesh and Cambodia helps explain why workers in these countries are so vulnerable to the degraded labor conditions of export economies that fuel our consumption abroad. The index's report on the U.S. is also instructive. The U.S. gets a 4- rating. That indicates that the country has systematic violations of rights. The lowest rating is 5+. The report cites an example of union busting at the Luxottica Manufacturing and Distribution Center in Georgia. There, the management connected workers to an app that was supposed to keep them informed about COVID risks at work, but instead, quote, served as a platform for management to send anti-union messages about purported risks of union organizing, including that workers might lose pay and benefits if they succeeded in forming a union. Classic union busting tactic. So I'm sure Luxottica is in good company. While the index is a fairly grim report on the state of labor rights around the world, it also reveals that despite being one of the wealthiest nations with one of the oldest labor movements and well over a century of modern labor laws, the United States still lags behind many comparable countries when it comes to protecting workers and will probably continue to slip behind even further as Congress fails to pass meaningful federal labor reforms. 
China is an interesting example of both the systematic repression of labor rights under an authoritarian state with a burgeoning neoliberal economy, as well as the precarity and hardships experienced by gig workers. Like their American counterparts, delivery workers with online platforms in China have seen a massive demand for their services throughout the pandemic when much of the country was experiencing lockdowns. But with that has come chronic wage theft, integrated working conditions. Here's a clip from a panel at the Labor Notes conference that I moderated about Chinese workers in the pandemic. Here, Eric Chen, who worked for a long time as a labor organizer and advocate in China, talks about the massive growth of the gig worker sector in China during the pandemic and the harsh working conditions that many experience. And apologies for the sound quality. It was from a live panel, so there's a little bit of background noise. Many manufacturing workers lost their job. Where they go? They go to the delivery workers. They go to the delivery industry, food delivery industry. And the government was crazily encourage everyone to get a job in the informal industry. Pre-pandemic, just only 300,000 workers in the food delivery industry. And then now it's like 13 million, which increased 10 uh, 10 million. And 40% of these people are from the manufacturing industry. And this, the government was very was heavily encouraged them to join the market, and and why? Because you know, uh, in this in this market, the government still didn't recognize the workers. The delivery workers are workers, so company didn't need to pay any social insurance for workers. So uh, actually, basically, for company, they don't have much uh, labor costs, and also in, the industry have high demand during the pandemic. And the government and reluctant to introduce new regulation to protect their labor rights especially for delivery workers they are facing so many occupational health injury when they when they riding their bike and always so many terrible things happen that was eric chen speaking at the 2022 labor notes conference in chicago after the overturning of roe v wade by the supreme court the connection between abortion rights and labor rights has become acutely clear as has the fact that both these rights are under attack by the same group of right-wing activists who see both abortion and unions as a threat to the existing patriarchy. A number of states have rushed to pass legislation to shore up access to abortion care, like New York and California. But maybe we should be having a more comprehensive discussion about reproductive justice as part of healthcare justice. We spoke with Asha Banerjee, an economic analyst on the research team at the Economic Policy Institute, about what the fall of Roe signals for workers and labor struggles across the country, and why abortion is not just a culture war issue. Can you talk about the economic consequences of the fall of Roe v. Wade? And in light of the way the Dobbs decision was written, uh, what do you forecast in terms of how um, the loss of abortion access in much of the country will affect some of the issues that you track in general related to economic and social welfare? I think it's really important to say, just especially after Roe v. Wade has officially fallen, that the loss of abortion access is absolutely going to be one of the most pressing economic issues and challenges facing us. And I always like to start this with a note on framing, because abortion is so often framed as you know, this culture war issue. There is a pretty powerful narrative, which I think you'd see on TV or just, you know, in the discourse that, you know, people or voters don't care about abortion, but rather kitchen table bread and butter economics. 
think jobs and the economy. But these absolutely are not separate issues. Abortion rights are so deeply connected with jobs. If we think about the types of jobs women and other abortion patients take or are unable to take and the economy as a whole, and also the larger issues of economic security, independence, upward mobility for millions of women and other abortion seekers. And so this analysis that we did basically examined the economics of this and looked at the 26 states where the decision is likely to take place first. So this is a mixture of states that have trigger bans in place, um, some of which have set into place right now. Some have pre-Roe v. Wade bans. These are legislations from sometimes the 20s, 30s, 40s, which have kicked into place now that Roe v. Wade has fallen. And what we can see is that in the 26 states, which abortion will likely be banned, which either are banned or are likely to be banned in the near future, there's already an economic architecture of low wages, underfunded public services, reduced access to health care. You know, many haven't expanded Medicaid. The average minimum wage in the 26 states is $8.39 compared to eleven forty-eight in the non-abortion banning states. 40% of these states have not expanded Medicaid. All but two of these states are, you know, quote unquote, right to work states, which make unionization and collective bargaining extremely difficult. Incarceration rates are significantly higher. And given that much of the legislation on the books, there is a criminalization aspect, either for getting an abortion, providing an abortion, traveling, things like that. It does matter that the incarceration rate is just so much higher in these states. And so all to say the states where this is happening, Roe v. Wade and loss of abortion access, this is an additional economic blow because these states have already created this economic policy architecture with these low wages and barely functional services. And so the denial of abortion services is one more piece in the sustained project over decades, over the last century of economic subjugation and disempowerment. So I think when putting this decision in the broader economic context, we can really see that this is one piece in this larger economic project. So not only is this an economic issue, it's an issue that is absolutely going to affect millions of people, but you know, especially working class people, poor people in many of these states. It will be black and brown women, um, Hispanic women, indigenous women who will bear the brunt of this impact. And um, it's so important to note that these states have already made it as difficult as possible you know, to survive, to support yourself economically, let alone carry out a pregnancy and raise a child. You had some interesting findings in terms of the state-by-state breakdown of how abortion access intersects with other issues, like things that people might not immediately think about, like incarceration rates or right-to-work legislation. So is the lack of abortion access kind of a, a symptom of a broader regime of policies that just are extremely oppressive for working people? Or um, what's the connection here, aside from the fact that all of these policies are touted by you know right-wing people? Um, I think regime is a great way to put it, because this is not, and I think you know, policymakers, researchers, and everybody hoping to understand and counter this issue I think we have to see it for what it is. This is not about motherhood or families or children. This is absolutely about upholding an architecture, a policy regime, an economics, a politics of 
control and subjugation. This is about power. And this is about controlling people's lives and not just their lives, but their livelihoods and their futures. We see sort of this cascading effect of economic crises. You know, there's a public health crisis. There's an, a crisis in access to high quality medical care. There's a crisis in inequality and wages and the cost of living crisis and housing and wage stagnation and inequality. And the point is that abortion access, or as we're going to see, abortion restriction and, you know, illegality and criminalization is interconnected with all of these other issues. And so that is, I think, so critical to talking about abortion as a labor issue, because all of these other issues, and I shouldn't say issue in the abstract sense, you know, all of these deliberate policy decisions to you know, oppress or subjugate, whether we think extremely low wages, poverty level wages and jobs with no benefits, which basically create, you know, cycles of poverty and generational poverty. Think the climate crisis, we think housing inequality, public health, whether COVID or before. These states also have extremely high maternal mortality rates. The U.S. as a whole has one of the highest maternal mortality rates compared to other developed countries. And so this is one additional piece fitting into that. And it's so important to talk about how this is going to interact with all of those other forces. When I think about the connection between abortion rights and labor, I also think about the people who work in uh, reproductive healthcare settings. Very often, this is a disproportionately female workforce. It's often gendered labor. I don't know if this is quite in your wheelhouse, so let me know if the, your research doesn't cover this. But have you given any thought to how the rollbacks on abortion rights could affect the sort of supply side uh, in terms of who is doing this work? So I think specifically that is a bit outside my wheelhouse. But what I can say is that when we think of whom this will impact, you know, as you said, abortion providers, people who work in um, abortion clinics and healthcare providers, many of whom are also from the community themselves where women and other abortion patients come from. And also, if you look at the studies of who receives abortions or who comes to get them, yes, many are very young, but a lot of abortion patients already have children. So this is also you know, a household issue. I think that a number of states are rushing to uh, pass legislation to shore up access to abortion care. I'm in New York. We recently passed legislation that would uh, help sort of codify abortion access. And I think California is doing the same. And it, it strikes me that these policies are pretty much targeted at this one aspect of reproductive health care. So I was wondering if as someone who looks at kind of the bigger economic picture, you have any thoughts about how states that are on the more progressive side of this issue are responding. And, and I guess I just think about how even in New York, where there is uh, guaranteed legal access to abortion, people still face huge barriers to decent, safe reproductive health care. And abortions still cost a lot of money. And a huge chunk of this country could not afford, you know, 400 dollars in medical expenses. <laughs> so do we need to be thinking more comprehensively about how abortion care fits into this broader universe of healthcare and, and how we need just a much more comprehensive vision of healthcare as a human right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. And 
obviously the situation is going to be worse and possibly, probably fatal in the 26 um, uh, states that are banning abortion currently. But as you said, even in the states where this right is codified, it's still extremely difficult and extremely hard. And again, this goes back to these multiple economic crises that we're seeing in terms of a failed healthcare system, you know, housing that is so, so expensive, wage stagnation, all of these things interact all over the country. And abortion providers often talk about you know, the costs are very high. You know, it's not just the you know, money that it would take for the procedure itself, but it's costs in terms of time off work, in terms of traveling, in terms of taking somebody with you. And if that person needs to also take time off and travel, many people who receive abortions are also caregivers in their own right. So taking care of that. Childcare is extremely expensive. Many abortion providers, um, we talked to somebody who runs a center in Atlanta, and they've talked about providing childcare for when women and other abortion patients are receiving the procedure. Treating these issues as all together, the interaction between needing healthcare, which includes access to abortion, with care services, with wages that are able to support oneself and one's household, and just thinking of these as all interlocking together. Paid leave, um, you know, nine out of 10 workers in the last year lacked paid leave. And so even in you know, quote unquote blue states, it is still hugely expensive. And you know, thinking of the costs of unpaid time off or you know, travel costs, housing costs, care services, no state should be complacent in trying to support at the moment. And, you know, support goes beyond just codification, although this is clearly the, a major thing that needs to happen. Um, but support in terms of, you know, care and access, healthcare as a human right, as you said, fair wages that um, allow one to support oneself as well. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about all these employers that are like oh, virtue signaling now and being like, we'll pay for your travel if you need to do an abortion across state lines. It's like, thank you, Dick Sporting Goods. Like, Maybe Uber and Lyft could also, you know, provide healthcare benefits for the people who work for them instead of pretending they're not their employees. But alas, I digress. But no, that's a, that's a great question. And um, we get this asked all the time about corporations. And it seems every corporation and business has you know, a statement at the ready about supporting employees and providing health care. And it is a good thing, I guess, that corporations and businesses are recognizing that this is an issue which will disrupt the economic lives of millions, um, including their current or potential employees. But at the end of the day, it is not a direct solution to having these rights codified at the state or federal level. And at the end of the day, someone needing an abortion should not have to go to their employer, whom they just have to hope has their you know, best wishes at heart. And it's also very likely, just practically, realistically, that workers in low-wage industries with very few benefits and protections are not going to even have access to this new benefit. And in a classic um, you know, nightmare scenario of how our labor force works and corporations we're already beginning to see corporations, especially in service and food and beverage industries, using this new benefit as leverage against unionization. And so access to abortion should not have to be subject to the whims of management, corporations, 
or used as a chip or leverage to suppress worker power. When you say they're using it as leverage against unionization, do you, do you mean that they're sort of dangling over people's heads as a threat or um, as a, a form of coercion? Yes, sure. So I will give the example of Starbucks, and this happened recently, and maybe this they will walk this back soon, but the website had a very nice, if generic, statement about protecting healthcare and how employees would have access to funds, this new benefit that would allow them to travel if they needed to make use of it. And there's an asterisk. And if you scroll way, way to the bottom, it says, oh, but we cannot guarantee this benefit to unionize stores because we're still in the middle of negotiations. And so again, this just, there's a chilling effect, right? Um, And there's sort of the unspoken statement of, yes, we, your benevolent corporation, your benevolent boss will provide this benefit. But not quite sure if we can do it if you unionize. Right. And especially when we're seeing, you know, so much worker power across the country. And I think hopefully we will see worker power and solidarity and organization for this issue specifically. And it's quite disheartening to see workplaces use this. Suffice it to say, we probably shouldn't be relying on our bosses to be the gatekeepers to what should be our basic human rights. Yes, (laughs) exactly. I think um, there's also been some interesting analysis looking at union density in states, sort of the flip side of, you know, the connection between right to work and abortion access, but sort of union density and access to reproductive health care. I know that some unions have uh, spoken out in uh, the wake of the Dobbs decision and signaled that they would try to help their members. Do you have any thoughts about what organized labor can and, and should do in terms of things like contract negotiations and, you know, trying in the absence of universal health care, um, trying to uh, protect their members, regardless of where they live? So I think the specifics are still playing out. A lot of big unions have released very supportive statements, and I'm sure many unions across the country are having conversations internally about how exactly concretely to respond to this issue. But there's a very long, successful history of unions advocating for reform on behalf of working people. If we think of the fight for 15 race across the country, or we think about Medicaid races, and unions have very successfully advocated and organized for those issues and won significant victories um, in states where you would not expect it to happen. And this is potentially another area where unions can and organized labor can lend their backing because this issue, rolling back abortion rights, is absolutely a worker labor issue. And again, there's a long history of unions fighting back against this centuries old battle to control people. And again, that's what this is. This is about controlling women and abortion patients, their lives and livelihoods. And it fully would make sense for unions to take a stand. Is there anything else you wanted to add in terms of the research that you're doing right now or things that people like those who listen to this podcast who care about labor should keep an eye out for? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I will say, whenever I talk about the economic case for this and how this is so deeply an economic issue, I absolutely do not want to imply that people should only care about this issue because, you know, GDP will go down or it's good for GDP growth or, you know, absolutely a 
assets and liabilities, you know, uh, cost benefit analysis type thing. That is absolutely not the case. But what this issue comes down to is the ability to choose whether and when to have children at what point in life, financially, economically, emotionally, is so key to economic security and freedom. Taking away these rights takes away women and other abortion patients. It takes away their autonomy, their dignity, and the freedom to exert their own choices in the economy. And there's been such a long battle over the last decade, century, to ensure that everybody can participate fairly and equally in the economy. You know, it's absolutely not a one battle. There's still huge gender pay gap. There's absolutely a motherhood penalty in terms of wages that women already pay. But adding this is just setting us back so far when we think about wages and inequality and access to healthcare. This issue fits right in with that. And people who are facing political and economic oppression in those issues are 100% going to be facing it in terms of abortion denial as well. So I think perhaps recognizing the intersectional battle can um, help build solidarity for the future. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Asha Banerjee, economic analyst with the Economic Policy Institute. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. Since I'm in England, I have another English story for you. Gig workers around the world struggle with the same conditions. A faceless, impersonal app sending them information that they can't control that dictates how and when they can do their jobs and often fires them without notice. Eve Livingston has a piece at The Observer this week detailing what's happened to delivery workers for the company Stewart, which is a mostly behind-the-scenes company that supplies subcontracted couriers for companies like Just Eat and others around the world. The piece is titled, Food Delivery Drivers Fired After Cut Price GPS App Sent Them on Impossible Routes. The drivers, many of whom are members of the Independent Workers of Great Britain, or IWGB, union, told Eve they were sacked by pro forma email after being mislocated by the GPS system or deviated from impossible or dangerous routes. The drivers provided evidence of management at the company, telling drivers that the GPS system was not great, but that it was cheaper than using Google Maps. Eve writes, quote, Until May, Adnan Odawa, 35, worked full-time for the app-based Stewart, beginning each day at McDonald's in Sutton Coldfield. One Tuesday morning, he made the 10-mile cycle ride from his home in Birmingham as usual, taking out his phone on arrival to log into the app as he had done for the past three years. But that morning, he had a new message. His account had been terminated and his access to the platform blocked. In a pro forma email seen by The Observer, Stewart told Odawa that several of his deliveries had been flagged for severe delays caused by excessive detours, including three order numbers listed in the email. Odawa did not recognize two of them, and the third related to a job where he had arrived on time and made the delivery, but, he says, the in-app GPS incorrectly located the address, forcing him to cycle almost a mile to the wrong location to mark the job as complete. I was shocked, he said. I thought, if you've got a problem with me for the first time in three years, you could at least send me a message and let me know, end quote. So the company, like so many tech companies these days, only has a chatbot for workers to report their complaints to. 
Anyone who's desperately tried to get help on, well, any number of apps in recent years will sympathize with the writers pleading with a bot to let them talk to a real human. Odawa received only standardized emails in return to his attempts to get help. Alex Marshall, president of the IWGB, told Eve, quote, The IWGB had investigated 55 cases since March 2021, and that in most instances, couriers were given no opportunity to review the decision with human involvement. An online appeal form was introduced in late 2021 after union campaigning, but it states terminations will only be reviewed where couriers can provide objective proof they were not at fault. Stewart can legally dismiss couriers without warning or reason, as they are classed as independent contractors, not employees. End quote. The GPS's problems were egregious, she writes. Quote, Screenshots and photographs shared with the observer show a driver in Plymouth being routed through a building site with warning signs visible, and a southeast London driver being sent through a road closure. Others show a driver in East London being directed to break traffic rules by turning right despite a no right turn sign. The couriers continue to experience frustration as their livelihoods are cut off. It's not just the cost of the GPS, of course, that the company is looking to save. Algorithmic management is designed to save the cost of a human doing the work of communicating with drivers, determining what's happened in a dispute, and making sure workers are safe on the job. Eve writes, quote, One courier says he sent several emails to Stewart explaining that his phone connection sometimes dropped out in the rural area he delivered in, but did not receive a response. An appeal he submitted in February has so far gone unanswered, he says. Another courier received a termination email citing GPS manipulation while in hospital, recovering from a road accident that happened during the previous night's shift. His subsequent emails, which included pictures of his written-off motorcycle, went unanswered. Marshall said terminated couriers were assumed without question to be acting fraudulently and denied a fair and proper process. Many new couriers are recent migrant workers new to an area who need the GPS system and are therefore vulnerable to its faults, he pointed out. The union says the GPS issues are just one of many concerns for Stewart's couriers, some of whom are engaged in the gig economy's longest-running strike over pay and conditions. Earlier in the strike, Stewart agreed to resolve an issue that had resulted in the unfair termination of couriers whose insurance details had been incorrectly recorded by the company. This, I guess, guys, is the brave new exciting future of work. The app fires you whenever it feels like it, there's nothing you can do about it, and, um, well, you're screwed. My pick for ARG is The Struggle to Unionize Planned Parenthood in Texas by Amy Littlefield with Lux Magazine. Lux was co-founded, by the way, by former dissent Nick Sarah Leonard, and this article actually quotes belabored co-host Sarah Jaffe from her new book, Work Won't Love You Back. Littlefield takes us on a journey through a union drive at Planned Parenthood in Texas that was ultimately crushed by the management. The piece offers a window into the struggles of frontline workers at abortion care providers who are subjected to multiple layers of pressure from an incredibly hostile political climate, from a dysfunctional and under-resourced healthcare system, and most disturbingly from the executives at their own clinics. Planned Parenthood, the nation's most prominent reproductive healthcare organization, is described by one interviewee as the Walmart of reproductive care. But unlike Walmart, the staff at Planned Parenthood tend to see their work as a kind of calling. Those interviewed for the article, even after they had been unceremoniously pushed out of their jobs, reflected on working for Planned Parenthood as a way of working for the reproductive justice movement. They were willing to overlook the inequities in the workplace, the sometimes racist behavior of supervisors, the unsafe working conditions, etc., because they knew they had to fulfill a much greater mission, and that was to deliver vital reproductive health care to patients who are vulnerable, isolated, and struggling. The fight for a union 
at Planned Parenthood in Austin was originally intended to help the workers realize this mission by ensuring that patients and staff would feel supported and respected in their workplace. But soon the workers who sought to organize faced stunning resistance from the management. The interviewees talked about feeling pulled in two directions, by their loyalty to the Planned Parenthood mission on the one hand, and on the other hand, by their desire for a just workplace. Emily Binford, a former health center assistant at the South Austin Planned Parenthood branch, said, quote, you're demonized by both sides. People are anti-union anyway, but then even people that are pro-union have trouble reconciling the Planned Parenthood that they see or the organization that they see in the media that fights for justice with the fact that we're saying that we're being unfairly treated as workers. And there's this incredible amount of loyalty to Planned Parenthood. Like, I feel guilty talking with you about Planned Parenthood because it's ingrained in us to be loyal, unquote. The pressure on workers not to rock the boat intensified when Planned Parenthood got hit with a cascade of political and health crises starting in 2020. Texas was walloped by COVID-19, and Planned Parenthood was besieged with an extremely harsh anti-abortion law that made the procedure near possible to obtain for many in the state. Binford recalls how miserable she felt when she was called upon to notify would-be abortion patients that their appointments would be canceled due to the new Texas law. The psychological toll of this job was, of course, aggravated by the risks of working through the pandemic. When workers were told by the executive of Planned Parenthood of Greater Texas that they would not be offered any additional paid leave if they had to take time off for COVID, it added insult to injury. One staffer in Austin noted how ironic it was that the announcement about not getting additional paid leave time was delivered over a Zoom meeting in which the CEO was safely tucked away in his own home while giving dictates to the clinic workers who were about to face a crowd of eager patients outside. The union drive intensified amid a fraught political atmosphere in which the impact of the Me Too movement, of the Black Lives Matter protests, and the crackdown on abortion rights all spurred Planned Parenthood workers to see their organizing as a matter of reproductive justice. Littlefield writes, quote, The push to unionize in the reproductive health sphere has coincided with the growing embrace of the reproductive justice framework, and that's no coincidence. Both tendencies are animated by the feeling that mainstream feminist nonprofits have not prioritized racial and economic justice for their staff or in their advocacy, unquote. And the campaign to unionize Planned Parenthood has also sought to broaden the scope of the labor movement. If abortion clinics were all unionized, the workers would be connected to unions that could provide political support and solidarity when clinic workers were challenged by political attacks or by internal strife with management. And unionization has slowly been gathering steam inside the Planned Parenthood network. Staff have successfully unionized at 10 of Planned Parenthood's 49 affiliates nationwide, as well as its national offices in Miami, New York City, and Washington, D.C. The Umbrella National Organization of Planned Parenthood has stated that it supports the rights of workers to unionize, but claims it does not control the personnel decisions of local affiliates. That essentially gives local affiliates the authority to resist union organizing, and several workers in Texas now claim that they have been fired in retaliation. The nascent efforts to unionize in Texas were quashed with the kind of vigor usually reserved for battling the organization's political enemies. Several people were laid off abruptly, prompting them to file a claim of unfair labor practices at the National Labor Relations Board. And the rash of dismissals left other workers feeling bitter and disappointed with an institution that they had once so admired. Richard Walner, a doctor who had worked at Planned Parenthood in North Austin and was one of the first to be dismissed, said that even though many of the staff he worked with were truly devoted to the cause of reproductive justice, quote, I just think that they saw these folks as a liability because of their concerns and then saw an opening to get rid of them, unquote. That could be said of a lot of corporate employers and Planned Parenthood, despite being a nonprofit organization, is no different. 
Planned Parenthood is a vital institution for countless individuals and families, but it is also a workplace. In North Texas, workers who thought they were joining an organization that was devoted to advocating for and providing safe reproductive care learned the hard way that their loyalty to that mission would not only be tested, but would readily be exploited by a boss who apparently thinks labor rights somehow don't have anything to do with reproductive rights. And that is it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kinnebarrow for making us sound good. And if you appreciate our independent journalism on underreported labor stories, please don't forget to support us at our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. You can get all of our archived episodes at dissentmagazine.org. And if you have any feedback for us, we definitely want to hear from you. If you have any thoughts about how the fall of Roe v. Wade will affect your workplace, we want to hear from you. If you are an aggrieved delivery worker anywhere in the world, and if you're a gig worker or an independent contractor who thinks they're being unfairly denied full employee status, get in touch. We are on the Twitters at hashtag belabored, or you can email belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.